Ten years ago, in September, believe it or not, we introduced a new vision, a vision statement, you could call it a mission statement for the people of Kent City Baptist Church. It's interesting, usually vision statements detail a new direction and purpose for a local body. But did you know the New Testament always had a very clear mission and purpose statement for the churches? We try to devise new things, but really Matthew 28 always has told us to go and make disciples. That's, that's our purpose. Ephesians 4 says that we need to prepare God's people for works of service. So in a way, we don't need to create anything new or come up with a new plan or purpose or mission. The mandates are clear, but the question is, as we go and make disciples, and as we serve, what kind of attitudes, what kind of outlook should we as a church have? What kind of people do we need to become? So that's what our vision statement really focused on. So 10 years ago, our answer that was arrived at by our leadership team is that we want to be a church that is daring enough to believe God and obedient enough to share. You've probably heard this throughout the years. We really focused on it 10 years ago. We took it up even stronger five years ago, but we have attached that to a lot of things. We want to be a people that are daring enough and obedient enough. We chose the word daring for a very strategic purpose. I can remember talking to Dan Spolster a lot about it. He really liked that word, and I did too. And the reason was is because as time marches on, it is becoming more and more clear that it takes courage to live for Christ. It takes real daring. Real Christianity goes against the grain. We will be swimming, the closer we are to Jesus, more against the current culture. To actually believe and live the Bible is counter-cultural. It takes daring. So that's why we came up with that word daring. So now, being 10 years later in our 10th anniversary, I want to revisit a little more of this idea, specifically the idea of daring. How does a person dare? What should he act like? How should he or she approach the world around them? To answer these questions, I'm going to start a four-week series in this month that is going to be called Risk, Becoming a Person of Risk. To live like Christ, to be daring, you must take risk. And we're going to use those four letters as acronym for a four-week series. But taking a risk is always scary. What if I fail? What if I don't have what it takes? And the worst fear of all, I think more and more in our society, is I can't risk if I don't trust what I'm being told. We don't believe people tell us the truth anymore. Because we're lied to all the time. So why risk if what I'm risking isn't really true? I came across a quote a couple weeks ago in my reading um, by the creator of VeggieTales. His name's Phil Vischer, and he makes this powerful, but it's a very sad statement. He says, when our generation was very young, and he would be a millennial, somebody about my age, he's around 45, when our generation was very young, many of our parents broke their promises to each other and their promises to us. And millions of American kids in a very short period of time learned that the world is not a safe place. Our grandparents were known as the greatest generation, yet we have become the most sarcastic. 
generation. If you look at our world, how can you not be sarcastic? Seriously. Honestly. What is up is now down, and what should be down is now up. I mean, Bruce or Caitlin, that's all you got to say. It's obvious. Listen to some more. ISIS, we don't even know how to deal with them. Iran and the nuclear Armageddon, what, what's that all about? How about this circus we call politics, Hillary or Donald? Which one do you want? Great candidates, huh? Gay marriage, Planned Parenthood's cold-hearted lies, the Duggars, that's a weird one. Mount McKinley or Denali? Which one, Arnie? Which one do you like? The president changed Mount McKinley to Denali. That's kind of a strange thing. Black lives matter or do all lives matter? Rebel flag is revoked. Wall Street is chaotic to say the least. Kardashians and Miley Cyrus are multimillionaires. If that's not something to be sarcastic about, what is? Deflate gate, cyberbullying, identity theft, and now... Even Jared, the subway guy, Mr. Wholesome United States guy, he's been indicted for child porn. Is nothing sacred anymore? How can we not be sarcastic? People mock because they don't know what else to do, and that's what sarcasm is. When we feel helpless to change things, sarcasm comes flowing out. But if we're not careful, over time, sarcasm corrodes. It corrodes. In fact, we have reached, I think, a season in America, and even in the church, where sarcasm has seeped down so far into our fabric that cynicism has taken over. It has become, in my view, our shared perspective on reality. We're cynical. One writer says, cynicism stems from disappointment. Cynical and faithless people were not always like that. Jeff Bridges, the actor, writes, they've been hurt. They're sensitive. And their cynicism is a shell protecting this tiny, dear part that's deep down inside of them that's still alive. But cynicism's protection is really what it is. My question for you is, are you cynical? If you've been hurt by the world, which I know we all have, I want to speak to you today who still have that small part alive. I want to speak to that part because it's in there. As the old camp song goes, it only takes a spark to get that fire going again. Josh is one of your favorite songs, right? He would cry by the campsite, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. <laughs> So what I've done is this risk series is my attempt to light that life back on fire and my attempt to destroy cynicism. We have to destroy it because it will destroy you. Cynicism's dangerous. So I'm really appealing to the cynic inside of you. Mr. Cynic, and I can hear that stubborn fear, arms crossed, Asking the question when I brought up risk, why should I risk? Why? Why can't I just go back in my favorite corner of my house and just hide from the world? Turn off the TV and hide. It's simple. It's because of who you are. It's 
because of who you are. That is what this week we're going to talk about is who you are. And that's what R stands for is you need to remember. We need to be brought back to who we are. I think we've forgotten. And to do that, I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what we read from before we took communion. But I just want you to look at one little verse, verse 20. And from this verse, we need to reclaim what I think many of us have lost. We need to reclaim this. This is going to be a simple message. I'll just be straight up. And the reason why it's simple is because we, to, to reclaim what we've lost, you've got to make it easy. Because this is so important. I'm going to read it, and then I'll give you context, and we'll just work through the words. Verse 20 just says this. We are, therefore, therefore is alluding to everything before, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The key is, we are Christ's ambassadors. What is the context? Let's just talk about the context of this verse. This verse is surrounded by some of the greatest verses in Scripture. It's the story about the warfare that's waging right now between a sinful earth and an incredible God. And because of our sin, damage and destruction has done something to us and our world. It's, it's really ruined it. But there's an answer, and the answer is called, if you look in verse 18 and 19, and even in 20, this word is a big word, it's reconciliation. The answer is reconciliation. Look at, listen to verse 19. Verse 19 says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This word reconciliation is one of those big religious words. It is often found floating or, or lightly cascading off the tongue of a priest or a pastor, and they say the word like this, reconciliation. It's one of the, you know, it's a very pious, holy word. We need to be about reconciliation. What in the world is he talking about? I remember when I was a kid and I'd hear that, that word and it really, I, did, I did never knew what in the, what is this? Reconciliation is not a holy word. It's a great word. It means restoration. To bring back to what it was in its former self. To bring peace. The cool Hebrew word is shalom. All things are right again. But reconciliation means God has initiated a process of bringing wholeness and relationships and peace back through the death of His Son. And it's now a reality. Because of Jesus' arms stretching, reaching from God to sinful man, He has brought us together. And that's called reconciliation. That's what it's all about. And this process is in it's, it's now. It's happening now. Listen to what one college student writes. It's interesting. He's talking about the cynic. All right, the cynic sees the problems and longs to change them, but doesn't know how. There's not enough money. There's, bless you, there's not enough money. Wow, that was a sneeze, Bertha. Wow, that was good. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
Let me go back to that. And please don't sneeze again, Bertha. We'll have to escort you out. All right. The cynic sees the problems and longs to change them, but doesn't know how. There's not enough money. There's not enough laws. Do we choose lumbermen or do we choose the spotted owl? Do we sacrifice education for law enforcement? Do we ax the space program or do we ax welfare, paper or plastic? Who has the wisdom to know the answers? That's nice, but in the long run, it doesn't matter. Everyone dies, and then what's the use? But is this really the final word? Is cynicism the logical conclusion for those with the eyes to see that all is not perfect? What if this hypothesis is false? What if, through some unforeseen event, accident, experience, or something else entirely, the cynic gets a hint that he was wrong? What if God exists? A perfect God who really does love everyone. A God who is not willing that any should perish. A God that did that. If he does exist, which I believe he does, that's why I think you've come to church, because I think you believe he exists as well. As it says here in verse 19, reconciliation is not just real, but things are now changing. They're being brought back to what they originally were. And the change, this change of reconciliation, of peace, begins with you. It begins with you. And it begins with a new identity God has given you. He's given you a brand new identity. God begins by restoring and recreating us. Believers who have been saved by grace have if you were here all of the last couple months, we talked about grace is received by faith. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again for you and accept that by faith, He sent you His Holy Spirit. You are now in His grace. His life is on the inside of you. And the whole point is to restore you back to what He originally wanted you to be. It's amazing. That's what reconciliation is all about but listen to now what he's restored you to become this is your new identity and I just want you to look at two words the first two we are we are I want to make this simple and I want you just to focus on those two words this up we are they, they don't seem like much, but they say so much. We are. These two words pack a punch. The words we read in the Bible are from God Himself. They are God-breathed. And this is saying something from God about us. Our staff had a very interesting discussion last Tuesday during our staff meeting. We were talking about you. We often do that. We often talk about you, believe it or not. One of our biggest concerns is that it seems like it's hard for us to accept clearly written statements in the Bible as fact. Like, I could read a very clear statement as fact, and it's as if we don't believe it. We need it to be explained, and re-explained, and re-explained, and it's pretty clear what it says. When you read the accounts in the Bible, they are authoritative. So you could say these words, go ahead and click it, these words are, it's a statement of authoritative truth in the present moment. So first of all, let's talk about authority. 
When Jesus spoke in the Gospels, people would say he spoke with authority. They'd listen to him and they'd go, man, he doesn't speak like the other teachers of the law. He's got authority. Now with authority, if you notice, there's a root word in there that it, I don't know why it was shocking to me when I read this a, a month ago, but it's sort of shocking. The root word is author. An author is a person who writes the story. The reason Jesus speaks with authority is because he's the author. He's the author of reality. He's the author of your life. And he's the author, through the administration of the Holy Spirit, of this book. He's the author. And so what this is saying in very clear terms is we are something new because of reconciliation. We have a new identity. We are not our old self. The second thing to notice about this phrase, it's written in the present tense. It is a reality that is go going on right now. There are Christians in here right now that will read these words on this page and think it's really not meant for them. I don't know why that happens, but it's as if this is some kind of statement that's out there. It's a nice textbook answer, but it's really not about me. This is about you. The author of the universe is saying this about you right here, right now. And some of you are like, yeah, but I just can't believe it. I need to be honest with you, and I know the pulpit's a dangerous place to be honest, but I have to be honest. Most of us, we are arrogant. Unbelievably arrogant. Sickeningly arrogant. And you're saying, why are you saying that? We think we have the right to believe things that are contrary to what God has clearly established that fact, and we're smug about it. If God says something and I say, I don't like it or I don't agree with that, we think we have the right to stand there. It's ridiculous. Let me give you a case in point. How many people have you ever heard say that they cannot forgive themselves? Have you ever heard that? I, I just can't forgive myself. You know, if you're going to move on in life, you have to learn to forgive yourself. Why, why do I need to forgive myself when God already has? Oh, I know what the psychologists and the counselors say, because you need to let yourself not feel guilt. You've got to let yourself off the hook. But that statement is categorically false. Think about it like this. It's like going to court before a judge, and I am on trial for murder. All the evidence is presented. The judge lives down his gavel and says, you're innocent. You didn't commit this murder. Yeah, but I feel like it. Just throw me in the clink. That's ridiculous. Somehow we hear this and we say, I don't feel this, so it's not true. Golly, I'm going to be a miserable person. No, we are something new. Stop that stuff. You are not as powerful or authoritative as God himself. Why do you feel you have the right to change what he has established as truth? We are. Case closed. We are what? Well, we are under new ownership. Not only do we have a new identity, but we're under new ownership. We used to be ruled by really the prince of the power of the air, our own self and flesh. But we are, as verse 20 says, Christ's. Look at that word a second. Just dwell on that. 
We are Christ's. Some of you, sadly, have even forgotten who Christ is. Let's review this for a second. Because having this man claim ownership on you, it's no small matter. His human name is Jesus. He is from the city of Nazareth. He's born in Bethlehem. Is miraculous. He is personally responsible for creating the universe. He's responsible for creating the world and the Atlantic Ocean. He is king over every single king on the earth. He can tell violent storms to behave, and they do. He terrifies Satan and his pack of wild demons. They're terrified of him. One time he got into a scrap with 2,000 of them, just by a mere word, threw them in a bunch of pigs, and they ran off the cliff, and they were scared to death of this man. He can fish without a hook. He just uses his words, and they catch his fish. He can make the most sophisticated medicine out of mud. Has anybody come up with any kind of medicine that can make a blind person see? Just put it on their eye, rub it, and they can see. All he does is spit in the ground, take some mud, puts it on the ice, says, wash it off, and the guy can see. It's kind of incredible to me. He rose up from the dead. As I was thinking about what it means to be owned by this man, to be called his friend, I first of all go to stories about my brother, but you've heard too many of my brother Don's stories, so I was thinking of another story that really has captured my attention. I'm a pro golf fan. I like pro golf. It relaxes me to watch. Bill Dunn isn't relaxing to watch some good golf. This past year is exciting because there's a new up-and-comer. His name was Jordan Spieth, a sharp guy, 21-year-old guy from Texas. He almost won three major tournaments in the same year. That is amazing for a golfer. He did win. He did win the Masters, which would be a dream come true for any golfer, and he won at the age of 21. Well, Jordan Spieth has a sister named Ellie. She's 14, and she has autism. During the PGA Championship, he was asked about her as she watched him compete in the biggest golf stage in the world. You see, nobody can get at him, but Ellie can. He said this. He said, I heard her yelling when I was walking over the last barrier before the first tee, and she came up to hug me. So I went down, and I saw my parents and Ellie. However, throughout the rest, I didn't hear them much on the course. I think they stayed back a ways. The crowds were big enough that I couldn't pick them out. Anyways, it's awesome when she comes out to the events. Ellie doesn't really know the difference in a major or regular tournament. She only accepts me if I win. And if I don't win, I better have something for her or I have to take her shopping. To the rest of the world, Ellie Spieth is unknown and insignificant. But she has the ear of one of the greatest golfers in the world. He gives her access to himself like no one else. He claims her as his own. She is Jordan Spieth's sister. We are Christ's. We are Christ's. Jesus picks us out of the crowd. The great one, oh, the greatest one, Jesus knows me. 
And that's just the beginning. He has chosen you and I because He has use for us. Salvation is just the beginning. It's where it begins. He has taken hold of us for a singular purpose. And so I'd say cynics beware because with His death and resurrection, He's changed the complete outlook on the game. No longer does hopelessness rule, but He has sent us out as salt and light upon the face of this world. You see, we have not only a new identity and new ownership, but we have a new role to play. Listen to verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. This is one of those words that we don't use too often. I mean, we hear about an ambassador to Benghazi, for instance, but we really don't understand the implications of what this word means. The phrase ambassador, the word ambassador means an experience actually is the idea of an elder, somebody with wisdom, an honorable person, a person of dignity, nobility, who's given major responsibilities. When America needed a voice to speak in France during the American Revolution, because we needed the aid of France financially, we sent Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson's a pretty important dude in America. He wrote the declaration, helped pin the Declaration of Independence, was one of the richest guys in Virginia Commonwealth, and he was sent to represent the United States, this little teeny new country, to France to negotiate with the big dogs. He represented us. After the war, John Adams was sent to England. They were given authority to negotiate treaties. They were honored by being brought before the king, and if they were mistreated or killed, it would be considered an act of war. You are sent where you are at by Christ himself. You are his ambassador. You represent him. You can negotiate peace for him. You bring honor and dishonor on his name by the way you act and behave. We represent Christ to a world that desperately needs him. Look at the rest of verse 20. Verse 20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. He's appealing to the world to be reconciled, and he's using us. He's using us to do this. So our job is to make an appeal to be reconciled to the one the world is at war with. But in order to make an appeal, in order to make an appeal, you've got to really hear this one. In order to make an appeal, you have to be appealing. This is hard to do in a cynical world. We have to work harder than ever to earn the right to be heard. In a book on Christian, the writers lament how poorly Christians have, are doing as ambassadors. The book states that younger people today have a strongly negative perception in Christianity. Here's how the book writes. It says, most people I meet assume that Christian means very conservative, entrenched in their thinking, anti-gay, anti-choice, angry, violent, illogical empire builders. They want to convert everyone and they generally cannot live peacefully with anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. The book also says this, we have become famous for what we oppose rather than for who we are for. This only causes the cynical world around us to become more cynical, to cross their arms more. They hear a Christian discussing peace and love, 
only to find a sales pitch. Ambassadors are to represent Christ, not just in word, it must be included, but in deed. You are to do this where you're planted, and you need to ask yourself, am, am I even appealing? Am I appealing? You are to be his ambassador not only on Sunday, but at work at 2 o'clock on Tuesday. How? How do I do this? This is what the remainder of the Risk series will focus on. Even though we live, as one writer says, among ordinary people doing ordinary things in ordinary places, somehow this ordinary person has the mantle of Almighty placed upon him. You, though you're ordinary, are not. You're an ambassador. For we are Christ's ambassadors. I want to close with a, a story that's a metaphor. It's a real story. It's a personal story, and I don't share it to exalt myself, but to give illustration of what I'm trying to explain. The title of the story is called The Story of Richard. When my wife and I were first married, we were committed to go to Russia for a year to bring the gospel to the Russians in the public schools. We agreed with the navigators that we would do this, and the navigators had a policy. You needed to be married for a whole year before we send you overseas. So that meant at the time we were married three months, we had nine more months to go before we could go. We also had to find a job for nine months. What kind of job is available when you only have nine months to work and you've got to tell your employer? Meager ones, bad jobs, that's the kind. Here's the job I got. My wife worked at a coffee shop in a tough part in um, Lakewood, Ohio, right near Cleveland. I got a job working in a large Toyota dealership in Parma, Ohio. Parma's not really the uh, garden center of the world, I would say. My job was changing tires and washing cars. It was greasy, dirty, and full of mechanics that rode Harleys and used very colorful language, if you understand what I'm saying. There was probably 18 mechanics I helped with rotating tires, changing tires, and washing all the cars that they brought to me. At the time, I was a 28-year-old man with a Bachelor of Science degree in marketing, and I had a master's degree in the Bible and missions, and my boss was a skinny 18-year-old with barely a high school education. I don't think he, I think he got his GED. He was my boss. My first day of work, he looked at me, and out of curiosity, asked me, why would a guy like you be working in a place like this? I answered him, well, I'm waiting to go to Russia to tell people about Jesus. He looked at me at this pinched face, took his last drag of a cigarette, threw it on the ground and goes, your God and people, are like, people like you is what makes this world hell. Talk about cynical. He's a cynical guy. That's how I started my job. Over time, he would give me all the garbage jobs, literally. I had to take out the garbage, wash cars, change the huge truck tires. He didn't like changing. And I didn't really say much, I just worked. And one thing he loved to do is he loved to swear in front of me and put on Howard Stern on the radio to see how I would respond. I just worked. That's all I did. That was my job, to work. One day he said, hey, dude. He had that kind of half smile. Dude, I have a really important job for you. I want, to clean, I want you to clean up both refrigerators and the lunchroom. There's two refrigerators in this lunchroom. It's a greasy lunchroom. If you've ever been in a mechanics place with 18 mechanics their lunch their lunchroom isn't 
It's really not a place to eat lunch. That's the best way to put it. They had two refrigerators. One wasn't so bad. One wasn't so bad. The other one I, op I opened up, and my, the hair in my nostrils, they, they, it burnt. They shriveled up. It had dead deer meat that has been in there two years. When you pulled it, it stuck, and then there was blood all inside that was caked on from this deer meat, and it stung. So what I did, you know, he, he laughed. He goes, oh, I'll see you in a little bit, man, you know, and walked out. And so I'm like, ah, I know how to fix this. I went and I got the power washer, power washed everything. Man, I, power, I scrubbed it down. I took this, you know, metal, metal uh, shovel and threw it all away, washed the floor, everything. He came in an hour later. And he goes, you really did it. I, I was just kidding. I said, you asked me to do it, I'll do it. He got all the other mechanics. They're like, you didn't have to do this. I said, oh, man, I'm going to bring my lunch from now on. I'll tell you what, after that, something happened. Something happened. This guy started asking me questions about everything. He started asking me questions about why I was a Christian. He started asking me questions about meaning. A month later, he came to Christ. One of the funniest things, I'll never forget it, is we invited him to our church. And we went to an upper crust church. I can remember driving him there. Michelle will never forget it. He said, just a second. We get out of the car. He takes three puffs, pinched it out, goes like that, and walks in. Everybody's looking at me like that because we all smell like cigarette smoke walking in this fancy place. I don't care. He came to Christ. He didn't really come to Christ because I was fancy, he became the Christ because I lived Jesus. I tried to be Jesus. Life is exactly like this. Eternity's coming. Eternity's the big show, and it's, and it's not going to be long. It's all, compared to eternity, life is like nine months. What do we do in the meantime? We live as, if, as Jesus would live. We work hard. We serve others. And we do good. And we might get an opportunity to say something. As I do good, Jesus shines. And why do I do good? It's because of who I am. Question is, who are you? Or have you forgot already? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture. It's so clear. We are Christ's ambassadors. Help us, Father, to be this. Help us to risk and start living like him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.